Chapter 2 of Round About a Great Estate by Richard Jeffries. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Sicily, the Brook. In the kitchen at Luckett's place, there was a stool made by sawing off about six inches of the butt of a small ash tree. The bark remained on, and it was not smoothed or trimmed in any way. This mere log was Cicely Luckett's favorite seat as a girl. She was Hillary's only daughter. The kitchen had, perhaps, originally been the house, the rest having been added to it in the course of years, as the mode of life changed and increasing civilization demanded more convenience and comfort. The walls were quite four feet thick, and the one small lattice window in its deep recess scarcely let in sufficient light even on a summer's day, to dispel the gloom, except at one particular time. The little panes, yellow and green, were but just above the ground, looking out upon the road into the rickyard, so that the birds which came searching along among the grasses and pieces of wood thrown carelessly aside against the wall could see into the room. Robins, of course, came every morning, perching on the sill and peering in with head held on one side blackbird and thrush came but always passed the window itself quickly though they stayed without fear within a few inches of it on either hand there was an old oak table in the centre of the room a table so solid that young aaron the strong labourer could only move it with difficulty there was no ceiling properly speaking the boards of the floor above and a thick beam which upheld it being only whitewashed and much of that had scaled off an oaken door led down a few steps into the cellar, and over the cellar and kitchen there sloped a long roof, thatched, whose eaves were but just above the ground. Now, when there was no one in the kitchen, as in the afternoon, when even the indoor servants had gone out to help in the hayfield, little Cicely used to come in here and sit, dreaming on the ash log by the hearth. The rude stool was always placed inside the fireplace, which was very broad for burning wood, faggots, and split pieces of timber. Bending over the gray ashes, she could see right up the great broad tunnel of the chimney to the blue sky above, which seemed the more deeply azure as it does from the bottom of a well. In the evenings, when she looked up, she sometimes saw a star shining above. In the early mornings of spring, as she came rushing down to breakfast, the tiny yellow panes of the window which faced the east were all lit up and rosy with the rays of the rising sun. The beautiful light came through the elms of the rickyard, away from the ridge of the distant down, and then for the first hour of the day the room was aglow. For quite two hundred years every visible sunrise had shone in at that window, more or less, as the season changed and the sun rose to the north of east. Perhaps it was that sense of ancient homeliness that caused Sicily, without knowing why, to steal in there alone to dream, for nowhere else indoors could she have been so far away from the world of today. Left much to herself, she roamed along the hedgerow as now and then a mild day came, soon after the birds had paired, and saw the arrow-shaped, pointing leaves with black spots rising and unrolling at the sides of the ditches. Many of these seemed to die away presently without producing anything, but from some there pushed up a sharply conical sheath from which emerged the spadix of the arum with its frill. 
thrusting a stick into the loose earth of the bank she found the root covered with a thick wrinkled skin which peeled easily and left a white substance like a small potato some of the old women who came into the kitchen used to talk about yarbs and she was told that this was poisonous and ought not to be touched the very reason why she slipped into the dry ditch and dug it up but she started with a sense of guilt as she heard the slow rustle of a snake gliding along the mound over the dead dry leaves of last year in august when the reapers began to call and ask for work she found the arum stalks left alone without leaves surrounded with berries some green some ripening red as the berries ripen the stalk grows weak and frequently falls prone of its own weight among the grasses this noisome fruit of clustering berries like an ear of maize stained red they told her was snakes victuals and to be avoided for bright as was its colour it was only fit for a reptile's food she knew too where to find the first crazy bettys whose large yellow flowers do not wait for the sun but shine when the march wind scatters king's ransoms over the fields these are the marsh marigolds there were two places where she gathered them one beside the streamlet flowing through the mash a meadow which was almost a water meadow and the other inside a withy bed she pulled the cattails as she learned to call the horsetails to see the stem part of the joints and when the mowing grass began to grow long picked the cuckoo flowers and nibbled the stalk and leaflets to essay the crest-like taste in the garden which was full of old-fashioned shrubs and herbs she watched the bees busy at the sweet-scented honey plant and sometimes peered under the sage bush to look at the effects that hid there by the footpath through the meadows there were now small places where the mowers had tried their new scythes as they came home a little warm with ale perhaps from the market town they cut a yard or two of grass as they went through the fields just to get the swing of the scythe and as a hint to the farmer that it was time to begin with the first june rose in the hedge the haymaking commenced the two usually coincide and then cicely fluctuated between the haymakers and the mowers now watching one and now the other one of the haymaking girls was very proud because she had not lost a single wooden tooth out of her rake for it is easy to break or pull them out in the next field the mowers one behind the other in echelon left each his swathe as he went the tall bennets with their purplish anthers the sorrel and the great white moon daisies fell before them cicely would watch till perhaps the sharp scythe cut a frog and the poor creature squealed with the pain then away along the hedge to the pond in the corner all green with creed or duckweed when one of the boys about the place would come timidly up to offer a nest of eggs just taken and if she would speak to him would tell her about his exploits a nesting about the bomb barrel tit a corruption apparently of non pareil and how he had put the yellow juice of the xelandine on his warrant to cure it then they pulled the plantain leaves those that grew by the path to see which could draw out the longest catgut, the sinews, as it were, of the plant stretching out like the strings of a fiddle. In the next meadow, the cows had just been turned into fresh grass, and were lazily rioting in it. They fed in the sunshine with the golden buttercups up above their knees, 
literally wading in gold, their horns as they held their heads low, just visible among the flowers. Some that were standing in the furrows were hidden up to their middles by the buttercups. Their sleek roan and white hides contrasted with the green grass and the sheen of the flowers. One stood still, chewing the cud, her square face expressive of intense content. Her beautiful eyes, there is no animal with a more beautiful eye than the cow, following Sicily's motions. At this time of the year, as they grazed far from the pens, the herd were milked in the corner of the field instead of driving them to the yard. One afternoon, Cicely came quietly through a gap in the hedge by this particular corner, thinking to laugh at Aaron's voice, for he milked there and sang to the cows. When she saw him sitting on the three-legged milking stool, stooping in the attitude of milking with a bucket between his knees, but firm asleep and quite alone in his glory. He had had too much ale and dropped asleep while milking the last cow, and the herd had left him and marched away in stately single file down to the pond, as they always drink after the milking. Cicely stole away and said nothing, but presently Aaron was missed and the search made, and he was discovered by the other men still sleeping. Poor young Aaron got into nearly as much disgrace through the brown jug as a poaching uncle of his through his ferrets and wires. When the moon rose full and lit up the Overborough Road as bright as day, and the children came out from the cottages to their play, Cicely, though she did not join, used to watch their romping dances and picked up the old rhymes they chanted. When the full moon shone in at her bedroom window, Cicely was very careful to turn away or cover her face, for she had heard one of the mowers declare that after sleeping on the hay in the moonlight one night, he woke up in the morning almost blind. Beside the meadows around the Luckett's place, she sometimes wandered further to the edge of Hillary's great open arable fields, where the green corn, before it came out in ear, seemed to flutter, flutter like innumerable tiny flags as the wind rushed over it. She learned to rub the ripe ears in her hands to work the grain out of the husk, and then to winnow away the chaff by letting the corn slowly drop in a stream from one palm to the other, blowing gently with her mouth the while. The grain remained on account of its weight, the chaff floating away, and the wheat, still soft though fully formed, could thus be pleasantly tasted. The plaintive notes of the yellowhammer fell from the scanty trees of the wheat-field hedge, and the ploughboy, who was put there to frighten away the rooks, told her the bird said, repeating the song over and over again, a little bit of bread and no cheese. And indeed these syllables, with a lengthening emphasis on the no, come ludicrously near to represent the notes. The ploughboy understood them very well, for to have only a hunch of bread and little or no cheese was often his own case. Two meadows distant from the lower woods of the chase, there is what seems from afar a remarkably wide hedge irregularly bordered with firs. But on entering a gateway in it, you find a bridge over a brook, which for some distance flows with a hedge on either side. The low parapet of the bridge affords a seat, one of Sicily's favorite haunts, whence in spring it is pleasant to look up the brook, for the banks sloping down from the bushes to the water are yellow with primroses and hung over with willow boughs. As the brook is straight, the eye can see under these a long way up, 
and presently a kingfisher, bright with azure and ruddy hues, comes down the brook, flying but just above the surface on which his reflection travels too. He perches for a moment on a branch close to the bridge, but the next sees that he is not alone, and instantly retreats with a shrill cry. A moorhen ventures forth from under the arches, her favorite hiding place, and feeds among the weeds by the shore, but at the least movement rushes back to shelter. A wood pigeon comes over, flying slowly. He was going to alight under the ash tree yonder, but suddenly espying someone under the cover of the boughs increases his pace and rises higher. Two bright bold bullfinches pass. They have a nest somewhere in the thick hawthorn. A jay, crossing from the fir plantation, stays a while in the hedge and utters his loud, harsh scream like the tearing of linen. For a few hours the winds are still and the sunshine broods warm over the mead. It is a delicious snatch of spring. Every now and then a rabbit emerges from the burrows which are scattered thickly along the banks, and, passing among the primroses, goes through the hedge into the border of firs and thence into the meadow grass. Some way down the brook they are so numerous as to have destroyed the vegetation on the banks, excepting a few ferns, by their constant movement and scratching of the sand, so that there is a small warren on either side of the water. It is said that they occasionally swim across the broad brook, which is much too wide to jump, but I have never seen such a thing but once. A rabbit already stung with shot and with a spaniel at his heels did once leap at the brook here, and falling short, swam the remainder without apparent trouble, and escaped into a hole on the opposite shore with his wet fur laid close to the body. But they usually cross the bridge, where the ground bears the marks of their incessant nightly travels to and fro. Passing now in the other direction, up the stream from the bridge, the hedges after a while cease, and the brook winds through the open fields. Here there is a pond, to which at night the heron resorts, for he does not care to trust himself between the high hedgerows. In the still shallow, but beyond reach, there floats on the surface a small patch of green vegetation formed of treble leaves of the water crowfoot. Towards June it will be a brilliant white spot. The slender stems uphold the cup-like flowers two or three inches above the surface, the petals of the purest white with a golden center. They are the silver buttercups of the brook. Where the current flows slowly, the long and somewhat spear-shaped leaves of the water plantain stand up, and in the summer will be surmounted by a tall stalk with three small pale pink petals on its branches. The leaf can be written on with a pencil, the point tracing letters by removing the green coloring where it passes. Far larger are the leaves of the water docks. They sometimes attain to immense size. By the bank, the wild willow or water betony with its woody stem, willow-shaped leaves, and pale red flowers grows thickly. Across where there is a mud bank, the stout stems of the willow herb are already tall. They quite cover the shoal and line the brook like shrubs. They are the strongest and most prominent of all the brook plants. At the end of March or beginning in April, the stalks appear a few inches high, and they gradually increase in size until in July they reach above the waist and form a thicket by the shore. 
not till july does the flower open so that though they make so much show of foliage it is months before any color brightens it the red flower comes at the end of a pod and has a tiny white cross within it it is welcome because by august so many of the earlier flowers are fading the country folk call it the sod apple and say that the leaves crushed in the fingers have something of the scent of apple pie farther up the stream where a hawthorn bush shelters it stands a knotted figwort with a square stem and many branches each with small velvety flowers if handled the leaves emit a strong odor like the leaves of the elder bush it is a coarse growing plant and occasionally reaches a height of between four and five feet with a stem more than half an inch square some ditches are full of it by the rushes the long purple spike of the loose strife rises and on the mud banks among the willows there grows a tall plant with bunches of flower the petals are bright yellow this is the yellow loose strife near it is a herb with a much divided leaf and curious flowers like small yellow buttons rub one of these gently and it will give forth a most peculiar perfume aromatic and not to be compared with anything else the tansy once scented will always be recognized the large rough leaves of the wild comfrey grow in bunches here and there the leaves are attached to the stem for part of their length and the stem is curiously flanged the bells are often greenish sometimes white occasionally faintly lilac they are partly hidden under the dark green leaves where undisturbed the comfrey grows to a great size the stems becoming very thick green flags hide and almost choke the shallow mouth of a streamlet that joins the brook coming from the woods though green above the flag where it enters its sheath is white tracing it upward the brook becomes narrower and the stream less though running more swiftly and here there is a marshy spot with willows and between them some bulrushes and great bunches of bull poles this coarse grass forms tufts or cushions on which snakes often coil in the sunshine yet though so rough in june the bull pole sends up tall slender stalks with graceful feathery heads reed-like surrounded with long ribbons of grass in the ditches thereabout and beside the brook itself the meadow sweet scents the air the country folk call it the meadow foot and in those ditches are numerous coarse stems and leaves which if crushed in the fingers yield a strong parsnip-like smell the water parsnip which is poisonous is said to be sometimes gathered for watercress but the palate must be dull one would think to eat it and the smell is a sure test the blue flower of the brooklime is not seen here you must look for it where the spring breaks forth where its foliage sometimes quite conceals the tiny rill these flowers do not of course all appear together but they may all be found in the summer season along the brook and you should begin to look for them when the brown scum that sign of coming warmth rises from the bottom of the waters returning to the pond it may be noticed that the cart horses when they walk in of a summer's day paw the stream as if they enjoyed the cool sound of the splash but the cows stand quite still with the water up to their knees there is a spot by a yet more quiet bridge where the little water shrews play to and fro where the bank overhangs as they dive and move under water the reddish brown back looks of a lighter color 
when they touch the ground they thrust their tiny nostrils up just above the surface there are many holes of water rats but no one would imagine how numerous these latter creatures are one of hillary's sons hugh kept some ferrets and in the summer was put to it to find them enough food the bird keepers brought in a bird occasionally and there were cruel rumors of a cat having disappeared still there was not sufficient till he hit on the idea of trapping the water rats and this is how he did it he took three small twigs and ran them into the bank of the brook at the mouth of the water rat's hole and just beneath the surface of the stream these made a platform upon which the gin was placed the pan and indeed all of the trap just under the water which prevented any scent whether the rat came out of his hole and plunged to dive or started to swim or whether he came swimming noiselessly round the bend and was about to enter the burrow it made no difference he was certain to pass over and throw the gin the instant the teeth struck him he gave a jump which lifted the trap off the twig platform and it immediately sank in the deep water and soon drowned him for the water rat though continually diving can only stay a short time under water it proved a fatal contrivance chiefly as it was supposed because the gin being just under water could not be smelt no fewer than eleven rats were thus captured in succession at the mouth of one hole altogether one hundred and fifty were taken in the course of that summer hugh kept a record of them by drawing a stroke with a chalk for every rat on the red brick wall of the stable near his ferret hutch he only used a few traps one was set not at a hole but at a sharp curve of the brook and the whole of these rats were taken in a part of the brook about two hundred and fifty or three hundred yards in length just where it ran through a single field the great majority were water rats but there were fifteen or twenty house rats among them these were very thin though large and seemed to be caught as they were migrating for sometimes several were trapped the same day and then none of this kind for a week or more three more hens were also caught a fourth was only held by its claw in the gin this one not being the least injured he let go again it had been observed previously that the water rats either in making their burrows or for food gnawed off the young withy stoles underneath the ground in the withy beds and thus killed a considerable amount of withy but after all this slaughter the withy beds recovered and bore the finest crop they ever grew but who could have imagined in walking by the brook that only in its course through a single meadow it harbored a hundred and fifty rats probably though some of them came up or down the stream the ferrets fared sumptuously all the summer End of chapter two